ever wondered what it would be like to be a climate scientist in the year 2022? To have spent years, if not decades, trying to sound the alarm at a time when it seems like humanity's future is hanging by a thread and most people don't really want to think about it for more than a few minutes. Our next guest is just that. She is one of the heroes of our time, Dr. Joelle Gerges. She is one of the world's leading climate scientists. She's an author. She's a professor of climate science and someone who is really dedicating her career to a level of service and sacrifice that I find incredibly inspiring while also kind of bringing her whole humanity and putting her heart on the table in a way that we're really not used to seeing from scientists. So I was really curious to talk to her about that and she very generously kind of peels back the curtain and lets us see what it's like to be a scientist in this field at this time, what she's learning, what is energizing for her, her kind of own philosophy on what she wants to do with her life and why. So I hope that this conversation is just incredibly inspiring and surprisingly uplifting for you as it was for me. And um, just by a bit of more background on Joelle, so she teaches climate science at the Australian National University. She served as a lead author for the IPCC's sixth assessment report, which is a global state-of-the-art review of the climate change science done by a community of scientists who volunteer their time. And she is the author of Sunburnt Country, as well as her new book, which we're discussing today, Humanity's Moment. It is an incredible conversation. Here's Joel Burgess. And here we are. I'm sitting down with Dr. Joelle Gerges. Welcome so much, Three Makers, and thank you for being here. Thank you for taking time out of your insanely busy schedule to talk to us all about the work that you do, the book that you've written, and why you are doing it. And I just wanted to get started with a sort of getting to know you a little bit and getting to know what drew you to this work and, and really what made you decide to become a climate scientist? Because I imagine it wasn't some burning desire as a young adult to go document the end of the world. Like I'm assuming that that's not where your head was at the time. No, well, firstly, thanks, Lily, for having me on the show. It's um, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I suppose my fascination with science really came about because of my love of the natural world. I think I was a child that was really sensitive and really attuned to the world around me. And as I um, went through high school, I started taking subjects like geography and science, and I really enjoyed them. And then in 1994, there was a, a really major bushfire um, in Sydney, and I actually saw ash and burning leaves just floating down in my neighbourhood. And for me, it was this idea that um, Australia's climate could be so ferocious, and I wanted to understand why. And so that that really led me to doing um, science at university. Uh, and it also led me around the world where I realised that this interaction between humans and the natural world was something I, that, that really fascinated me and I, and I really wanted to learn more about, about that. Uh, but everywhere I went, I could see this sort of collision of uh, inequality and poverty and the natural world and the exploitation of that. And I wondered whether we could live more sustainably. Um, and I also realised that life 
and society can change really quickly with the vagaries of the weather. So I think that's really was my motivation was wanting to understand that that relationship, um, and, and that's led me to a, a very long career. Um, looking into the answers to those questions. (laughs) Yeah, I love that fundamental curiosity that seems to drive all great science and scientists. And um, I also love how you write in the book, you know, to me, it felt like the most important thing to try to figure out how humans can collectively overcome poverty and inequality and live meaningful lives without trashing the planet. And I think we're really going through that paradigm shift, aren't we, of first asking the question, is that actually possible? We would like to believe yes, so what is it going to take? You also talk about how you were inspired by David Attenborough and his work and things like A Life on This Planet. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that in terms of what led you to want to write this latest book? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, David Attenborough is a living treasure. I mean, he he has been bringing the... um, the, the wonders of the natural world to our screens for over 70 years, which is extraordinary if you really stop to think about, about it. He's, he's seen more of the planet than probably anyone alive today. Um, and I think I've always really found so much inspiration in nature and the intricacies of nature uh, and realising that there, was a, there came a point just a few years ago where I was watching one of the series and I realised we, we were looking at archival footage. We were looking at effectively images of what is to be a lost world in the future. And then something inside me kind of clicked where I really felt like someone like David Attenborough is using the time he has left to become a climate advocate and to really help people understand the um, biological and ecological crisis that we're experiencing and how interrelated it is to climate change. And for me as a climate scientist, I feel like I have so much information at my fingertips. A lot of people outside of the scientific community don't understand how quickly the world is changing. And so for me, I felt compelled to use my skills, any platforms I have available to me uh, to try and convey that to the average person who might be busy with other matters, but realising that we really are at this critical crossroads now uh, in terms of where humanity goes and and it's a a really fateful fork in the road. Yeah. And you bring not just your head and the facts and the knowledge to this book, but your heart, like you lay it out there, you put it on the line, you really take off that professional mask in some places and talk about the toll that this knowledge and documenting this and thinking about this all the time. Most of us can't bear to think about climate change for more than about 10 minutes. And this is your paying job. This is your life's work to be immersed in this all the time. And I'm curious that conscious choice to, I'm going to let people see my emotions as a scientist. It's not something we're used to. What made you make that decision? I think because it was the most authentic response I was having to the work I was in front of. And I think when you work at the UN level, you get a sense of what is happening all over the world. So any delusions you might have had that the situation just might have been bad in your country, but it's fine somewhere else, that was really blown out of the water. And I guess for me, I couldn't help but feel moved by the fact that we are seeing these large-scale ecosystem collapses on our watch, the fact that the ice sheets are starting to destabilise, the fact that we're going to see the displacement of millions of people in low-lying areas of the world. Um, And to me, that just felt so heartbreaking, Yeah, honestly. I mean, that's really the only way of of putting it. And and I think that sometimes there is a misconception out there that to be 
you know, a, a, a scientist, you have to be really detached from your work and just really only um, think about things in terms of logic and reason. And we do all of those things, but it doesn't stop us from actually having a, an emotional response to our work. And so I just felt like the most authentic thing I could do was actually share that with people. Um, and I found that that's actually opened up a space to allow other people to validate other people's emotions because the truth is a lot of people do feel really distressed about this and it's an entirely rational response to really distressing information, right? Absolutely. So, so I'm hoping that my writing also paves the way for other people to, to start to have put language around the way that they're feeling, to find um, a sense of camaraderie and kinship in others that also care about care deeply about the state of the world and, and also just realising that they're not alone with those feelings. And so if the people who know the most about it, climate scientists, don't actually um, come forward and, and share their em emotional response, then um, I, I think it's, it's a little disingenuous because the truth is, is that we feel it. And so I guess I'm just being honest about it. And, and to be honest, we, we had pioneers like Rachel Carson who came forward um, in her seminal work um, that came out in the 1960s, Silent Spring, where she talked about our emotional response to the world being um, a really wise thing that we shouldn't disconnect from. And I think as scientists, um, I think it will help other people come to terms with the actual reality of it, that we're not just looking at numbers on a graph, we're talking about the people and places we love, and that actually um, the continuity of these things are now at stake. So um, I'm hoping that we can just have, I guess, a a rational, gentle, and uh, compassionate conversation about where to from next. Mm, that's beautiful. And I, I would love to give people a little bit of a taste of the book, actually, and, and that heart that you bring to it. Would you mind reading out a little bit of a passage for us? Because I think that it will just give people a taster of kind of what we're talking about here, because it's not just you saying, oh, you know, it was a hard day today or feeling a bit depressed about this at the moment. Like you really are a beautiful writer and you let us get a sense of you in this, in this work. Thanks, Lily. Sure. I'm, I'm happy to read a passage. Um, I think it's from part two of the book. I have spent hundreds of hours trawling through countless UN reports and scientific papers until my eyes sting and I can no longer absorb any more information. I feel overwhelmed and saturated with sorrow. As a sensitive person with a difficult background, sometimes I find the reality of the world we live in unbearable. I just can't understand why we inflict so much pain on each other and our planet. There are days when it's hard to take in all of the senseless destruction and somehow try and accept so much avoidable suffering. Increasingly, I fantasize about quitting my job. I dream of living a simple, escapist life by the sea. I want to learn how to be delusional to somehow be blind to the reality of the world shifting before my eyes. While I struggle to not give in to my own despair, I know it's wrong to expect young people and the unborn to clean up the world's mess. They have inherited a problem not of their own making. My privilege, education and conscience deny me the luxury of looking away. Although sometimes it takes a heavy toll, I want to share everything I can as quickly as possible while I still can because I know the time is running out. I've come to realise that the only way forward is not a detour through denial, but straight through the heartland of grief. When you realise that all that sustains us is at stake, it's almost too much to process. 
The reptilian brain wants to take flight and avoid confronting the unthinkable danger bearing down upon us. The poet T.S. Eliot was onto something when he wrote, Humankind cannot bear very much reality. To shy away from difficult emotions is a very natural part of the human condition. But just because we can't face something doesn't mean it disappears. Blocking feelings of empathy and concern to avoid psychological pain is a common defence mechanism designed to protect us from becoming too emotionally overwhelmed. Endlessly distracting ourselves with mundane matters is a way of distancing ourselves from feeling conflicted and distressed by the realisation that we, individually and collectively, have an ethical dilemma to face around caring about each other and the future of all life on earth. Unfortunately, we live in a culture where we actively avoid talking about hard realities. Darker parts of our psyche are considered dysfunctional or socially unacceptable to share, especially in public. But trying to be relentlessly cheerful, stoic or avoidant in the face of serious loss simply buries more authentic emotions that will eventually come up for air. Denial only ever rests in a shallow grave. Thank you. I've read that a few times now and listening to you read it. It just kind of goes straight in, doesn't it? It really does penetrate the defences, but with such compassion and gentleness and a sense of being in there next to you rather than lecturing you from on high. And look, I love how you divide this book into three sections, the head, the heart, and the whole. I thought that was a beautiful structure. And I think that... If you don't mind, I'm going to steal that for today and we can follow the same format. So since we've gotten to know you a little bit now, um, I think that with that beautiful heart introduction, let's just dive into it. Like, let's just get straight into the stuff that most people want to ask a climate scientist. We put this out on social media a couple of days ago, you know, we're sitting down with one of the world's leading climate scientists. What do you want to ask? And the questions are basically, are we doomed? And how do you cope? <laughs> like, <laughs> is it too late? <laughs> I mean, how, how do you stay sane? Um, and, and I think that's what a lot of us are doing. We're holding our breath because I think there's this feeling that maybe it's a pass-fail test and we've already failed, you know. So can you, can you just give us a bit of that high-level information that I think most of us are holding our breath wanting to know? Of course. So one of the key messages to come out of the IPCC's latest assessment report is that how bad we let things get is still very much in our hands. And so while sometimes you see in the social media platforms and and other places, sometimes uh, non-expert commentators will comment on these things, um, but they don't really have the depth of knowledge in terms of understanding exactly where we are scientifically. The truth is, is the situation is pretty grim, right? So that there is um, a lot of heat now baked into the system, which is going to result in some inevitable climate change. But we do know that the higher levels of warming have um, more impacts. And, and right now we're in a position where we can try and avert the worst aspects of climate change. And so in our report, we say that every fraction of a degree matters. So when you often hear about the Paris Agreement targets, we talk about trying to maintain the Earth's temperature at 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. And right now we're at 1.2 degrees. Uh, and you can already see the escalating impacts of that. So if you can imagine what's that going to be like when we get to 1.3, 1.4, 1.5, 2, 3, and even 4 degrees. And so I guess the first message is that really we're not in a situation where we've got runaway climate change and this inevitability of just tipping points cascading and 
and sort of sending us deep into the apocalypse, which I think is good news. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, I felt myself exhale as you said that. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, and, and so that's the thing, right? So the scientific community are basically saying that once we start to stabilize emissions, temperature also stabilizes alongside with that, which is actually good news. Is that the system is sensitive enough to actually start to st- stabilize? The bad news is that while it reforms an equilibrium, things that have been set off in train, for instance, um, the melting of ice sheets, will continue to play out over decades and centuries to come. So there is a certain degree of locked-in warming. So that that's true, um, but it, it's not to the degree where we, we feel like we can't come back from the brink of that. So I, I guess. The scientific community is effectively imploring the world leaders to to really take this report very seriously. Um, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has, has called it a code red for humanity. So it really is a code red for humanity. That is very strong language from the UN, I can assure you, having been involved in a process where we agonise over every single word. For someone to be coming out and saying that is genuinely a true call for help from the international community to do something. And so we have to accept that we are at this fateful moment in our um, history where we do need to make very big decisions about um, how bad we let things get. And this next decade is particularly important because we need to be halving our emissions um, as quickly as possible um, and getting to net zero no later than 2050. And so that's that's an enormous challenge that we face uh, and it's still, we're not really quite there yet. So I'm not sure if you want me to go into the details right now, but um, I, I'm I'm ha- I'm happy to uh, to let you know where we're at, which unfortunately isn't isn't a fantastic place. So where we are right now in terms of the current um, currently uh, implemented policies that have been put forward under the Paris Agreement is seeing us warm between anywhere between so two and four degrees. That's, that that's a catastrophic overshooting of the Paris Agreement targets. If we consider the net zero emission targets that many nations signed up to at the, the latest um, or the last UN climate uh, conference um, in Glasgow in November 2021, um, we're looking at around about two degrees of warming. So just sneaking in under that two degrees, still that, 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 is, a, that is really bad news, for instance, for at two degrees of warming, you see 99% of coral reefs uh, disappear. Uh, and with that, um, 25% of marine life that has part of its um, Life cycle and tropical uh, coral reef ecosystems also has a knock-on effect. So we can't even begin to measure those sorts of things. So we want to avoid that. So where we are right now is nowhere near where we need to be. So we have taken really important steps forward, uh, but the political response is still really inadequate. Yeah. So in the context of this week, um, as we're recording this, you know, finally the Australian government has enshrined some climate targets into legislation. Uh, Finally, net zero by 2050 is at least bipartisan policy between the major parties, but that's not enough. Look, it's a really, really good start. Um, But in the same breath, they're also, the federal government is also looking to approve uh, new gas uh, exploration, uh, new oil fields, and, and and to the north of Australia. I mean, there's a, over 114, I think it is, different fossil fuel projects that are slated right now for um, exploration or in the pipeline. So, look, that's entirely inconsistent with what the scientific community says we need to do. We cannot be burning any more fossil fuels. Full stop. That era has come to an end. We just have to accept that now, 
Um, but the good news is that we can transition into technologies that are mature enough to be able to, um, to transition. So I write about that in the book. And sometimes I think it's a case of us not telling ourselves good enough stories. We need to tell better stories about the future and what we want to create and that Australia can be a renewable energy superpower, as can many other countries in the so-called sunbelt of the world. So you see countries in places like Asia and Africa really um, having excellent economic opportunity in terms of uh, solar and, and other renewable energy um, technologies. So the truth is, is we're in this really sort of critical moment where we're transitioning from the old era of the burning of fossil fuels into this clean energy uh, period. And so I think uh, for good reason, people with vested interests want to continue to make a lot of money out of these fossil fuel projects. Uh, and I even saw some commentary earlier this week um, from the new UK, I think, Environment Minister or the person in charge of their climate change portfolio saying that we want to exploit every single drop of oil from the North Sea. Now, look, that's that's just, that's got to stop, right? And so I'm sure we'll talk about this, but it's it's also removing the social license for these um, sorts of decisions to be made and that comes about from exercising our political power. But well, we can talk about that later. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that there are best, there's a lot of momentum in the way things, in the status quo and the way that things have always been. And so it is going to take people stepping up individually and collectively and saying enough is enough. We want to remove the social license for destroying um, our planet. Um, and we need to learn to live sustainably because actually every single decision that's ever been made in humanity's history has led us to this point where we've actually destabilised the Earth's climate, which is an extraordinary thing to think about. Yeah, and I think I think there's that part of our reptilian brain that just wants to reject that because it's just, it's like we gave the teenagers the key to the house, the car, you know, <clears throat> an unlimited stash of booze and went, we'll be off, you know, you'll be fine, like... It's, it's, I think there's just some part of us that thinks, no, we couldn't possibly be that powerful. No, we couldn't possibly have messed things up that badly. And, you know, we don't have the level of scientific training and literacy in our general education to be able to understand some of these big ideas. And so that reptilian brain just wants to go, no, like can't be true. And, you know, I'm wondering from your perspective, as someone who does understand things like deep time and the biosphere and the, you know, what, what are the things that people still can't get their heads around? Is it that what we do now in the next 10 years affects the future of life on earth for millennia? Because that was one of the zingers in your book that got me. I was like, <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Look, I think you're right about the lack of scientific literacy. I think people, you know, high school teachers do their best to teach students, but it is a complex area that requires a lot of um, deep understanding of technical material that sometimes we just don't have the time to deal with in the curriculum. And so that brings us to university level, but not too many people study science, okay? So, yeah. I mean, I'm a university lecturer. I see the sorts of students I get. Um, there's not so many that come through. And I guess part of the reason why I wrote this book was to provide people with a really easy entry point into a complex topic. So I tried to strip away as much of the, the really sort of um, hard science to just give people the, the, the sort of need to know version of the science. I haven't dumbed it down, but I've given people a lot to think about. Um, and, I, and I think that that will help people feel like they can participate in conversations that sometimes feel quite um, technical or they feel like they can't be included in those conversations. So I think that's the first thing is, is that feeling that most people don't feel they understand science. 
Um, and so I think we need to improve that because we are at this moment now where we are, the human, human beings are now a geologic uh, force on the planet, just on par with things like te- plate tectonics and, and things like that. I mean, it's, it is an extraordinary thing to come to terms with. Like our little monkey brains do not deserve this, you know, <laughs> like really, like we're pretty clever and we can have empathy and we can contemplate our own mortality and our existence but we should not be given the keys to this whole system. Like- that's, that's right. Look, I, I think, you know, ultimately it takes enough people waking up to say, no, look, we need to be doing things better. We have to be doing things better because, yes, we, we are trashing the planet in ways that are, are now really like it's cumulative. So every decision that we've ever made to exploit the natural world has led us to this point. And I think that is a really interesting thing to, to contemplate. Um, it, it's actually huge to think that every single decision that we've collectively made has altered the atmosphere and the ocean to such a degree that we, we're literally destabilizing the way that the earth has had a stable climate for um, around about 11,000 years after we came out of the last ice age and we had this um, warmer period. Uh, and and that's, the, that's the climate that human civilization has evolved in. That, that is basically the, enti- that, that's the entirety of human civilization right there. So when we start to remove that stability, which we're doing right now, then we're, we're moving into different terrain and I think people need to understand that and that's why the scientific community has already done that service. We've already done that work. Like we've compiled the most comprehensive report humanly possible <laughs> and all we want people to as do. As volunteers, for as, goodness sake. As volunteers, that's right. We don't get a penny for it. Um, but we want people to listen. And I suppose, uh, you know, that takes us into the heart part of the book, you know, how we talked about the head and the heart. And so the heart is about understanding exactly what's at stake. So for me, the heart is about the heartbreak. It's that connection between, you know, intellectually knowing something and then the emotional response that comes about. So for example, analogy could be, um, you know, if you found out that your mum or had uh, cancer, right? So you might be sitting there with, with your mother and the doctor and talking about options and treatment options and all this sort of stuff, but there'll be a, there'll be a time later on after you've sort of dealt with the emergency where it's like, my mum could die. And that is actually facing loss. And that is, as I was talking about before, that's going through the heartland of grief because we're only going to protect the things we care about. And so part of what I want to really convey in this book is that there's so much worth saving on this extraordinary planet that we all share and we must right we must do it not only for the stability of the earth's biosphere so that we can continue to have a living planet but it's for me it's also like a a moral issue around uh, you know young people and future generations and and allowing this planet to continue to thrive but we have to think about redefining our relationship with the earth. And the good news is, is that a lot of um, Indigenous cultures already know how to do this. It's, it's called respect. It's caring for country is how we phrase it here in Australia. And this idea of custodianship and realising that when you take care of the earth, it takes care of you. And I think we need to do that on a global level, this sort of global citizenry. And I think it's possible. I know it's possible, but we just need enough people to get behind it. As I said, to, to sort of remove the social license for the destruction of the planet and create a demand for a better world. And I think that to me is is the exciting part of this. I'm not, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. It's not going to be easy, right? 
it's going to be very, very challenging. In fact, it's probably going to be the most challenging thing we ever face as a planet, right? Because meanwhile, we're still dealing with a world that's full of conflict and um, instability and a whole range of things. But it's it's now we've been so distracted by all these other things that literally our home is starting to to shake underneath our feet and things are starting to come apart. And I guess the scientific community's message is that we need to deal with this as an emergency. It, it is it couldn't be more urgent. just wanted to say that if this conversation has got you thinking, well, we would really like to hear from you. So you can get in touch with us directly via email podcast at australiaremade.org. You can also give us a call and the details for that are in your show notes. I wanted to give a huge shout out to everyone who takes a minute to spread the word about this podcast or to write a review. It means the world to us. We are a small, not-for-profit, independent team building a community of people who want a kinder, smarter, more hopeful and solutions focused politics. So if that sounds like your jam, please go to the website, australiaremade.org and sign up to get updates and stay in the loop and check us out. Thanks. Back to the show. I've read recently that um, that I have, I've seen it phrased as we're moving from an industrial civilization to an ecological one. We're going to survive. And what does that look like? And I think that transformation—if we can thread that needle, you know—and I know it's not just a pass/fail test, but I think the more that we lean into that, like what an incredible transformation that will be. And I think about my own young children or their children if they have any. And my goodness, would I love them to live on a planet where we've transformed our relationship to not only nature, but to each other, to our economy, to the way that we think about, you know, it's not just extract and exploit and get every last drop. It's it's a very different thing where that's baked in, you know, where a love of, of nature is baked in. And I love that you talk about love in this book and and the history of social change movements, you know, that they are driven by this, that they are driven by that sense of love and empathy. It doesn't I think sometimes when we try to talk about these things in relation to climate change, we feel a bit Pollyanna or like we're trying to skate on the surface or we're worried that it's going to come across as hopium. Someone told me that term the other day. That sounds like hopium or toxic positivity. But when it's coming from a scientist, a leading you know climate scientist, looking at this from the coalface saying, no, we need to bring in the heart and we need to bring in the love. It doesn't, there's a real like, ah, okay. It's, it's almost like an evolution in our understanding of what it's going to take. Absolutely. For me, it's full circle um, because there's, there's nothing um, Pollyanna-ish about, uh, about it because if you stop and think about it, it it's, we, we will protect the things that we care about. And if we don't connect with our sense of love and reverence for the natural world and for each other and inequality and the fact that we, if we can't tap into p- compassion for you know, people that are still displaced by floodwaters in Lismore or the people that are displaced in Pakistan right now um, from, from the intense monsoon or the people that are, you know, dealing with war in Ukraine, then, then 
if we have our without our humanity we are no one yeah is something yeah. that I write in the book and I and I think that's what I got to is, is because ultimately we're not talking about a scientific issue here this is this is actually a moment where we need to think about what is it to be human right now and we need to redefine that and we need to think about being um stepping up to this moment and realizing that there is it's a, it's a moment of healing it's actually a moment of healing and it's a moment where we can right the wrongs of the past so for instance um really trying to repair our relationship with indigenous people who have been dispossessed and ignored for far too long and they are people that have that very very deep understanding of the natural world and culture and i think that you know, industrialized Western culture has strayed so far from our inherent humanity where most people don't even know where their food comes from. Most people don't realize that, for instance, you know, three quarters of the planet's surface has been modified by humans in some way, and only 3% of land ecosystems are actually considered ecologically intact. 3%. 3%, right? 3% of our planet. So that's a horrific statistic to come to terms yeah, with. Yeah, no, my reptilian but, brain just kicked in. It was like, ah! Not that way. Can't deal with that. What does that mean? And and you know, when I was compiling this book, I I too really stepped into a place of deep shock. I think, and, and that's why. But I felt compelled to keep writing, and I do apologize to the reader as I go. But I'm taking them by the hand, and I'm really trying to step them through difficult material because it is something on the other side. There's always something on the other side. Like if you talk to you know, or you read about, you know, the, the Holocaust survivors and how even in the worst possible situation, people would still step up in their humanity and maybe share a meal with the, with someone or just do those tiny little things that remind you that there is still inherent goodness in humanity. And we see, we saw it with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where people were driving from Europe um, across to give people um, a bed to stay, like a place to stay. And there's always, always, no matter what is going on, people will always step up. And you think about, you know, the, the frontline workers on the COVID crisis, all of the, the nurses and the doctors who are working around the clock. You think of the bushfire um, fighters who are there protecting our precious places. Or you also think of poor old IPCC scientists working through a global pandemic to, to, com to compile this report to warn humanity. Now, you can't tell me there's not goodness in humanity. When you look around you, it's very easy to, to say no one's doing anything or no one cares. That's actually not true. And so that's where I feel that we need to get better at telling better stories, telling more stories about people who have visions for the future, people that care, people that want to band, to get, band together at this moment and create this um, critical mass that will create the social movement that we need that social movement's happening out there already. I mean, you only have to look at the uh, school strikes for climate, Greta Thunberg's movement, um, and, and that has just snowballed. And, and I think that we're going to continue to see these social tipping points, but we need to step up. We need to understand that we can't expect somebody else to do it, that what you do in your own life, whether it be through your consumer choices, through your political power and the way that you vote and who you get behind and whether that they, those people reflect your values, to me, that's actually really exciting. And I, and I sort of think of this moment as this revolu revolutionary moment where we'll look back at the 2020s as, you know, the same way we thought about the 1960s where people say, where were you when this was happening? Well, where I was was in the thick of it, doing what I could to help 
raise awareness. I, I, I showed up. You want to be able to say to your grandkids, I showed up in that moment. I, I, you know, I, I went on that march. I you know, did that thing that made a difference. And, um, and I think all of those tiny little decisions ultimately culminate in something that's collective and also ultimately um, create this new future that we want. But it's this concept of active hope. You know, Joanna Macy, the psychologist and Buddhist philosopher, talks about active hope as being this thing that you do, not this thing that you have. And it is this, um, it is, it is an active process of being the change that you want to see in the world um, and not just talking about it. So this is the moment. The IPCC is basically saying this next trans, this next decade is is the is the most critical decade where we need to transition away from fossil fuels. And for me, that is not just a conversation about energy policy. That's a conversation about our culture and our society and what we value. And I talk a lot about that in part three of the book, which is the whole. And the whole is really that connection between your head, your heart, but also the people around you and our communities and realising that collectively we have an immense amount of power. I think when we reconnect with that, something shifts. It shifted for me when I realised that human history is actually just a um, that's 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 the entirety of human history. That's that's tug of war for social justice, whether it be for civil rights or gender equality and all these other things. Um, and I think the climate movement is about that um, and creating a better world. And it's one that I think um, has the potential to really transform and really leave a legacy. And I, and I think that that is that's something that's that's to me is a meaningful life. So even if we, um, you know. Even if we fail, at least we tried, and that's that's basically my that's basically my my philosophy on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, I want to come back to the kind of the whole and the where to from here and what what we're doing um, collectively and individually, but just staying in that kind of telling the story, telling better stories, and and having a vision for the future. Can I ask you what happens <clears throat> in a natural world perspective, from a science perspective? What if we got everything right? Like what if, you know, this is the the cascading tipping points going through the different systems from finance to politics to community sentiment, social action. What if humanity actually belatedly comes to, I think you call it the mother of all group assignments that's been neglected. <laughs> yes. And like what if all the students go, shit, we've like really got to do this now. And, you know, what is our natural world? We, we hear all the time about the end of the century and you know, two degrees or more of, of warming. And like you said, we're already at 1.2 and we're seeing the havoc that that is wreaking. What does the natural world look like if we get everything right today or from today? Well, the good news is, and I use a few examples in my book, is that the natural world is quite resilient. And when you give it a fighting chance, it will come back. It might take time. So if you stop and think about, you know, um, a seed that you plant now might be the forests of, you know, 500 years from now. And to me, that is, that's a beautiful idea. Um, and so we won't maybe see the immediate effect of some of these things, but it's an, it's an act of hope and it's an act of love to say, I'm going to do that. And I think that is really important. So the first piece of good news is that nature is incredibly resilient, um, but we need to give it a fighting chance. And, and what the, the IPCC report says is that those higher levels of warming are, are just too hard for um, lots of ecosystems and, and human systems to adapt to. So we want to avoid that. So we need to come back from the brink of disaster. We need to avert this disaster. So that's the first thing I would say is that if we 
if we give if we if we care enough to actually do this um we can we can do it the second thing is that it's not a done deal in the sense that it's going to be something that's prolonged and ongoing so we can't it's going to be something that we need to take a stand for every day every year every generation that it just becomes a part of this shared philosophy or our shared cultural values if you like that um that we all get behind. And the UN actually have this beautiful um, charter called, it, it's this concept of harmony with nature. And I talk about it in my book where it's a philosophy that, that basically calling for the people of the world to live in harmony with nature. And, and that might sound a bit utopian or whatever, but actually th- there's a very strong scientific case for that because if you de- destabilise the Earth's living system, then we destabilise the, the systems that we need as human beings. But I think we need to stop thinking about the natural world as this um, a collection of natural resources that are just there for our exploitation and realise that it's life, the biosphere has life, and there's a lot of intrinsic value in that and there's also a lot of cultural value in that as well um, in different worldviews. That might not be the Western industrialised worldview but in other worldviews and maybe we need to take a leaf out of their book in terms of bringing back that reverence and care so I would say that it's, it's long-term cultural change. It will take time and it won't be a done deal. The same way that gender equality, we're still fighting over that now in terms of gender pay gaps and, and several other things or the Black Lives Matter movement where, you know, two steps forward and then one step backwards. And, and that is going to be, as I said, this is the story of human history. This is ongoing. But which side of history do you want to be on, I guess, is my, my question to the reader in this book is that you can choose to get behind those ideas that that really speak to you and those values and, and create that world that you want. So, But it, it isn't going to be that we get to some magical point and then utopia is reached and that's it. It's yeah. going to be ongoing. We did it. We solved it. We passed Done. the law. We electrified yep. everything and right. now we can carry on. Or we found some machine to suck it all out of the sky, go us, and yeah. Yeah. I love how you write, um, well, you quote the poet Lisa Wells, who writes in her book, Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World. If our descendants are alive and well in 100 years, it will not be because we exported our unexamined lives to another planet. Are you listening, Elon Musk? It will be because we were in this era, I know he does electric cars, able to articulate visions of life on Earth that did not result in their destruction. Formerly, my idea of sustainability had been vague and of the leave no trace variety. But ways of life are possible in which human beings not only thrive, but also repair damage and even increase biodiversity and beauty of the planet. It is a story predicated on leaving a trace of legacy. It's such a beautiful quote. And that's why I included in the book there's so much wisdom in what Lisa has said there. And and other writers have, you know, I, I often quote Rebecca Solnit. She's a brilliant thinker and writer. Um, in this space has given me a lot of inspiration. And the good news is that there are a lot of people who are thinking deeply about this. And this is where I mean by the telling better stories. We need to really elevate these ideas and things that are going to help motivate people to realise that it is, we're just hearing the very destructive narrative right now of the doom and gloom and the apocalypse unfolding and it's all really awful. Um, but we can also be telling a story about the people that are showing up and stepping up to this moment. And I think for me, um, that's the conversation I want to be a part of. You also write, it is not the time to start eulogizing our planet or to expect a foregone conclusion of an apocalyptic future. And so let's get to the heart of this kind of 
really frustrating question around, well, what can I do? And I, you know, I think from uh, with my work hat on, right, in the Australia Remade perspective, we look a lot at um, actors who have a lot of power over the systems that we have inherited or that we are swimming in. And, you know, there was an article that did the rounds recently um, about if you feel guilty about the state of the environment, kind of like part of you has been conned, like the industry set it up this way, right? Like they invented, like recycle, let's recycle our plastics so that everybody can carry on using plastic. And, you know, uh, BP's PR people created the concept of a carbon footprint. And then we all have gone around agonizing over how to shrink our carbon footprint, like that we have been taught to feel guilty as individuals and responsible as atomized individual consumers for this environmental destruction, right? Which makes it incredibly difficult to then know where to put the, you know, where's the lever? Like, what do we change? What do we fix? Because we can focus on our own little lives and become, you know, quite distressed or quite judgy or quite puritanical with our, within ourselves and still not be kind of changing the sort of bigger system. So it's not this cut and dry answer of like, well, here's the one thing you can do to stop climate change. You know, like people do care. We know that people care. We know that there's that research. So I know that you're a scientist and, and, and increasingly an activist, but like, how do you help people come to this question of, well, geez, what can I do? Like, I, I don't, I, cause I think we think that people know, or we think, oh, well, we have to stop burning fossil fuels. Great. How do I make that happen? Like, yep. No, great question. I think it's getting to the heart of it. And I think we have to remember that we have a lot of consumer and political power. So the first thing you can do on an individual level, and, and just to respond to your point you've just made, is that, yes, it is misplaced blame to say that it is individuals that, you know, are, are, are sort of, um, how do I put it, um, responsible, I guess, for the destruction of the planet, whereas, you know, it really is when you start to look into the numbers, it's it's, it's a number of fossil fuel um, companies that have, have really unleashed a lot of the havoc. So we need to, the big polluters need to be accountable. So that that's the first thing I would say. But having said that, there is something meaningful in your own footprint. So in terms of thinking about how you um, power your home, for instance, like if you've got solar panels, can you do that? Thinking about the food on your plate. So I also talk about the, the really heavy footprint that, um, animal agriculture has on the planet. So thinking about those sorts of things are really, really important, not only in terms of emissions, but also in terms of health and lifestyle. Uh, and thinking about all the, the, the micro ways that you can do things. And there, there are other groups out there who can speak to that. Um, I do talk about a few of those things in my book, but the real thing I, I talk about is political power. Because it, as we saw in the Australian federal election back in May, is that when we actually get behind politicians that reflect our values, we can change the system. So we saw an extraordinary throwing out of a toxic government that was really apparent on so many levels in terms of environment, social values, and, and all sorts of things. And we basically said enough is enough, and people got behind, behind independent candidates and green candidates and said, we, we want to do a new type of politics here. We don't want to do the same old, you know, um, he said, she said, you know, really toxic adversarial politics. And I think many, many Australians are just sick to death of it. We want a better conversation. And I think that now that we have um, more independents and Greens um, in the House of Rep Representatives and also in the Senate, I think we're, it's really set the stage for more accountability and more change to actually happen. So that came about because people got out and voted, right? So right there, 
when people say, oh, there's nothing I can do. Well, you can get behind someone who is going to step up. You don't, maybe you don't want to be a politician per se, but you can get behind someone who is and hopefully they reflect your values. But you also might have power in other areas of your life, whether you're a business leader, a, a parent, a teacher, a, uh, I mean, it's endless. I talk about how it's endless. Your sphere of influence might really be quite specific. You might be able to, to change the way your company does business. You might be able to change your support of your superannuation fund that might support fossil fuel projects. There's so many different things. So I sort of see it as this sort of consumer and political power that we have, that we each of us have. And then all of a sudden the agency's back with us. You can make a choice about that. That's something you can actually do, right? I love that's, that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not rocket science if you ask yeah. me. It, it's pretty simple, <laughs> right? That's a scientist. Right? No, no, but that, that's, 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 that's social and political change. I mean, I'm not an expert in those things, but I, I read deeply when I was writing the book and it really inspired me. It made me realise that the social movement we, that we need to do this can happen. But it requires people waking up initially, so we have to understand it. So we've got to understand the head side of things. How bad is it? The heart, do we care? And then the whole is the collective action. And I think, as I said, it's, it's a meaningful thing. And even if we fail, which we mustn't, but if we did, at least we, we died trying, yeah. right? We um we had uh, Claire O'Rourke on the podcast recently, and she's written this book called Together We Can, and it's all of these really wonderful stories of people kind of creating systemic change together, you know, around Australia, around the world, and all these different spheres. And she she said something that that stuck with me about when people ask her, "Well, what can I do?" She just adds one little word onto the end of that question, and she says, "What can you do next?" Like, what's you know, because it's like you said, it's not a destination. We don't get there and go, okay, right, great. You know, like it's okay, I've changed my super. And as someone who just recently discovered that there's a range of new um, sustainable fossil-free super funds on the market more than ever before, like check with your current superannuation provider people because whoever it is, chances are there is a sustainable investment option that you didn't even realize was there. Look into it, see what the fees are. I'm not giving financial advice, but like these, you know, it took me two minutes online to tick a different box. And now my retirement savings is going into something else, you know, and I'm, and I'm not getting slammed on fees and things like that. So it's, it's those kinds of things. What can I do next? It's just a great question. And like you said, we all have different spheres of influence. None of us live and die alone. We, we are part of communities and societies and companies and we can all think about all of these things um, as part of our response. But look, yeah, I love I, that, Lillian. It's really cool. And it, it also makes me realize that once we start having this conversation, everybody has something to offer. So I'm hoping that this book is a conversation starter. I don't have all the answers. I don't claim to, right? But as a scientist, I want to let people know the situation is really bad. Collectively, what can we all come up with as solutions? And I'm sure they're going to be extraordinary things that are already out there and you just gave an example of something really simple I did that recently too with my super where it was just so easy to do and just something yeah. I hadn't really it's got like around shockingly to doing. easy yeah right same. right but people once we start to mobilize and create resources and hubs where people can think about these things I think it starts to become much more achievable and I think that's where we're at I think we're it's the dawn of a new era uh, but we've got to move quickly I suppose is what I'm saying but I'm really hoping for these um, these conversations that bring other people to the table, bring other leaders to the table who are thinking about things already because that's the beauty of it. As I think 
it's all it's all there. We just need to get behind it. Listen, Dr. Joel Gerges, thank you so much for joining us today. Humanity's Moment is out now everywhere you can buy books. It is an absolutely beautiful book. And I, I just want to say, look, on behalf of everyone that might be listening to this or people who may never know you by name or know your colleagues by name, just thank you. Just absolutely thank you. You know, I think the way that we currently look at the healthcare workers as the heroes of the pandemic, future generations are going to look at climate scientists and go, wow, imagine being one of them. So thank you for walking with us and walking us through this and taking the time and, and wearing the weight of it, you know, that has not been easy for you and, and helping us to see the way through. It's been just an absolute honor and pleasure to get to know you and talk to you today. Oh, thank you, Lily. Really, that's very moving. Thank you. This has been The Remakers, a podcast by Australia Remade. We celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be Australian. That is 60,000 plus years as the oldest continuing civilization on Earth. I'm recording my part of our chat from Muinina country in Lutruwida, Tasmania. And I record from Dara country, which is just north of Sydney. Our deepest respects to the elders and traditional custodians of these lands and waters. This podcast would not be possible without the talents of the incredible Anna Wilson, our producer. You can learn more about Australia Remade, sign up to get emails and join the community of remakers over on our website. That's australiaremade.org. And if you love the show, please rate and review on iTunes. If you want to send us your ideas or thoughts for future episodes or just share something that's on your mind, you can email us at podcast at australiaremade.org. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for all that you do and for being part of this community. We'll see you next time.